0: So over the last couple of weeks, we have been talking about some, some really big commandments in the Bible. Uh, we've been talking about some of the big, overarching foundational commands, and, and uh, there's only a few of them. But how they relate to this idea of the kingdom of God that we've been talking about for several months now, the idea of God's rule over us, His people, in His place and um, just a little bit of quick review, two weeks ago we, we started talking about the Great Commission, which is what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28 when he told them to make disciples in all nations throughout the earth, uh, and then we, we really defined that as what you might call kingdom work. If we are working for the kingdom of God, if we are seeking the kingdom of Jesus first, like he said we should, then we need to be involved somehow in plugging into that great command that Jesus gave us, those last marching orders before he left the earth, the great commission to bring people to Christ from all around the world. And how there are many, many ways to do that. But. Then we went back all the way to the book of Genesis, this was two weeks ago, and we looked at something that is often called the cultural Mandate, which is kind of a fancy name for the very first command that God ever gave people, which was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it and We talked about how that really takes into account all of the different things that we do in home and at work. It really takes into account our everyday life and how human beings uh, you know take care of our needs but also bring culture into the world and that sort of thing and we talked about how we can actually, in the midst of our everyday routines at home and at school and at work and at play, we talked about ways that we could bring really a kingdom flavor or a kingdom edge into those things and do them in a way which perhaps even plugs into Christ's great commission to build up the kingdom of God. Then last week, as I gave you a little bit of a review of what had happened at Alliance General Council, we talked a lot about what Jesus was doing around the world. Uh, But we also looked at what was called the great commandment, the great commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then especially last week, we talked about the second part of that, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we saw how loving our neighbors, while it may not automatically qualify as kingdom work per se, all by itself, is still very crucial to advancing God's kingdom, especially because when we love people, when we really love people, it tends to break up some of, the, some of the hard ground, clear out some of the rocks, clear out the obstacles that are in people's hearts so the good news of Jesus can be planted in their hearts in a powerful way. But there's one more foundational commandment that you don't see before you there that we haven't looked at yet. And sometimes this one gets overlooked, and, and people wouldn't necessarily classify it with the other ones, but I, leave it, I believe it needs to be mentioned in the same breath, really, as these other commandments. And this one we're going to look at today is absolutely critical to Christ's plan to build his kingdom on earth by bringing people to faith in him. Turn, if you will, with me to John chapter 13. John, fourth book of the New Testament, and find chapter 13. Let me give you a little bit of background about what is happening in this really important chapter. John chapter 13, Jesus has just gathered his disciples into an upper room in a house in the city of Jerusalem for a meal. And it is the night of Passover, the Jewish holiday of Passover, so it's a very special meal. And in fact, it's even more special than the disciples know because Jesus has about 18 hours to live. He knows this. They don't. But it's with this backdrop in mind that Jesus says a lot on this particular evening, and everything that he says takes on added significance. I want you to think about this. if, if you, well, What would you say to your closest family members, your closest friends, if you just had one more night together? One opportunity to talk to them. What are the things that you would say? What would you want to get across? This is, this is Jesus' last chance to, to pour his truth into his most committed followers before he goes to the cross. But interesting, interestingly, he starts off the evening not by talking, but by doing something else. He very slowly and deliberately takes a towel and a basin And he starts washing the feet of his disciples, going from one to the other, washing their feet. Something that was usually the job of a lower-level servant and something that would be unthinkable for a rabbi to do to his disciples. It should be the other way around by all rights. In fact, Jesus' action here is shocking enough that when he gets to, to Simon Peter, Peter actually objects to what Jesus is doing. And Jesus gives an explanation we're going to talk about later. But after Jesus finishes this task of of just ultimate humility and servanthood, he turns to his disciples, and then he says, I just washed your feet. This is what you need to be doing to one another from now on. And then Jesus mentions that one of the men whose feet he has just washed is actually a betrayer. And this causes more shock and and some more soul-searching among the disciples Eventually, Judas Iscariot, the one that we know to be the betrayer, but they didn't know that that night, he is dismissed from the room supposedly to run some kind of errand. But we know that that Judas had just left to go betray the location of Jesus and his disciples to the chief priests and to the Romans. And so as soon as Judas leaves the room, now the clock is ticking. Jesus only has so much time, and he changes his tone now. Let's pick it up in verse 31, John 13 Verse 31, when he had gone out, that is when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Jesus has spent a lot of his ministry telling people, my time is not yet come, my time has not yet come, it's not time for this yet, it's not time. And now Jesus says, it's time. It's time. Little children, verse 33, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love. For one another brothers and sisters this is a huge moment and a very important commandment and in case you didn't realize it, jesus actually repeated it three times there for his disciples and he called it a new commandment a new commandment and indeed it is a new commandment this one is different than the already existing commandment to love our neighbors because this one is specifically referencing our love for one another Our love for other followers of Jesus. Today we'd say our love for other Christians. Our our love for other members of God's church. Our love for other kingdom people. That's what this is about. And not only is the object of our love different and new in this commandment, but the modifier is also different. The how is different. How are we supposed to do it? Because each of these commandments to love comes with a modifier, comes with an explanation. We are to love God how? with everything we are, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to love our neighbors, how? As we love ourselves. We are to love one another in the church, how? As Christ loved us. As Christ loved us. Well, how did Christ love us? Whoa. Ultimately, Christ gave himself up for us completely. This love that Jesus has for us is even more intense than the love we have for ourselves which is the basis for our love of neighbor, which means that our love for one another, get this, needs to be more intense, more committed, more more sacrificial, and in fact a priority compared to our love of all other people. And this is backed up by other parts of the New Testament. For instance, in Galatians, Paul says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but especially to those who are members of the household of faith. And then notice how Jesus ties this love very specifically to what we might call kingdom outreach. He says, this is how everyone's going to know that you belong to me. This is how everyone's going to know that you're mine. This is the love that will attract people, not just to you, but to me also. This love that you have for each other is kind of like your advertisement for the kingdom. This is how you're going to get their attention. This is your calling card, church. And if you think about it, that's a little bit counterintuitive. In fact, it seems a little bit ingrown and clicky and kind of exclusive and almost a little bit obnoxious, right? You Christians just love one another so much. What about the rest of the world? Because I mean, I know that I would, I mean, logically speaking, I would think that Jesus would say, love the non-Christian people in your life. Love the lost. Love your non-Christian friends and neighbors. And that's how you'll, they'll know that you belong to me when you love them so much and when they receive that love. Kind of like what we talked about last week that love of neighbor that, that, that so often paves the way for someone to respond to the good news of Jesus. And that is something that is certainly true. We talked about it all last week. It's true in our experience. But oddly enough, and this is kind of unexpected, the Bible doesn't seem to make that connection as directly as the connection that Jesus makes here between our witness to the world and our love for one another. In fact, a few chapters later, Jesus is going to pray for these men and for us as well, and he's going to pray that we will all be one. Why? So that the world will know that the Father had sent him into the world. So the question is, why is this? Why is the love of Christians for one another, this new commandment, why is the love of Christians for one another so foundationally important when it comes to our witness to the world, which means the growth of God's kingdom? Well, there are at least two reasons. First of all, if we're really going to represent Jesus in the world, we can't do it alone. If we're really going to faithfully represent who Jesus is to the non-Christian world around us even, we can't do it by ourselves. We need each other. One of the favorite verses in the Bible for most pastors is Hebrews 10.25. Because Hebrews 10.25, and you've all heard it preached on probably at some point, is the verse that tells us not to neglect meeting together. Or in the old King James, it says not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And of course, pastors love to preach on that because we're basically saying, y'all need to come to church, right? And it's true, you do need to come to church. I guess I should say something right now to the folks that are watching online real briefly, okay? And if you're, if you're on vacation right now and you're like at the beach or you're, um, you know, somewhere where you couldn't be here and you're, you're coming to church remotely right now, praise the Lord, that's awesome. Um, or if you're, you're sick or whatever reason you couldn't make it out or, or, you know, there are many, many very valid reasons why you could be watching online. Um, but it's also possible that you just rolled out of bed this morning and you said, you know what, it's just too much of a pain in the neck to get up and to go to church. So we're just going to go to church here um, That's okay, but it's much better to come here in person and to be with your brothers and sisters, and so let me just leave it at that. Uh, But it's important that we get together. It's important that we get together. This verse, uh, this verse 1025 of Hebrews, the one about not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, however, is actually an explanation of the verse before it. Because that meeting together... is not the the main verb. Neither is encouraging one another, which is also in that verse. They both look back to the main verb, the main action, which is actually in verse 24 of Hebrews 10, which says, here's the main one, consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And that word, stir one another up, is not a very pretty word. It can be translated, provoke one another. In fact, some translations use that word. Anyone here, when you were a kid, have a younger sibling that knew how to provoke you? Right? Really knew how to push your buttons? You know, so when you were on a trip, it was like, stop touching me, stop touching me, Stop! get away from me, stop touching me, get your hands off my Game Boy. Mom! Right? Yes, I see, I see that hand. I see many hands. Okay? And who usually got in trouble? You did. Why? Because you were provoked. Because your little sibling provoked you, and, you and, and the provocation was kind of intense and it provoked you to do something maybe a little bit violent or loud and you got in trouble. In fact, depending on how sinister and calculating this little sibling was, maybe you even suspected that they spent a good deal of time thinking, thinking about and, and maybe even planning for how to provoke you. Right? They thought about how, how it. How can I get my older brother or sister to go off? Well, guess what? That's the command in Hebrews 10.24. We Christians are supposed to consider, think about, plan for, anticipate, look for ways to provoke our brothers and sisters, perhaps not quite as obnoxiously as that little brother did, or sister, sorry. But, but still, we are called to look for ways to get under each other's skin a little bit, not to make each other angry. That's not the point but so that we'll be challenging each other to grow in love and good work, that is, in Christian maturity, in Christ-likeness. And as we challenge each other in this way, as we sharpen one another, our witness in our community, the voice for the kingdom, is going to become a lot more powerful and effective. Jesus actually alludes to this in the John 13 passage. When he gets to Peter, he's washing the disciples' feet, he gets to Simon Peter, and Peter tries to stop Jesus, and he says, hey, no way are you ever going to wash my feet, this is the wrong way around. And then Jesus says to Peter, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. And that kind of hits Peter right between the eyes. So Peter says, well, if that's the case, then don't just wash my feet, wash my head and my hands, wash my whole body, you know. And Jesus says, Peter, I don't need to do that, actually, because you're already clean. You've already had a bath. What he's telling Peter is you're you're already my follower. You're confirmed as my follower. You're a Christian. You're saved. And you're not going to lose that but Peter's feet still needed to be washed. You see, what happens is as we walk through this hurting, sinful, messed up world, our feet get dirty as Christians and we pick up some of that brokenness. We can't help it. We might sometimes get discouraged or lose hope. Sometimes we might disengage from people and give up on trying to love them because we've gotten hurt along the way. We might become critical or cynical about life or about people. We might fall back into a particularly troublesome sin. Well, when this happens, we don't need a spiritual bath. We don't need to get saved again. But we do need someone to come and wash our feet. We need the body of Christ. We need the church because Jesus told us to do that for one another. Part of serving one another is making each other more holy by doing whatever we can to help one another get back on track with Jesus and to serve him more faithfully or effectively And the writer of Hebrews says we need to keep this in mind whenever we meet with each other. Some ways we might do that. So when your friend, just as an example, comes into a small group meeting or maybe you're just going to lunch together with him or something like that, and he starts to tell you about some of the struggles he's having with one of his kids or maybe a disagreement he's had with his wife or maybe he starts telling you about something, some, there's some coworker who's messing everything up at work and then he gets blamed for everything and now he's about ready to lose patience with the situation and he's going to blow up his witness in the process. Maybe he needs someone just to gently say to him, hey, that sounds tough. That sounds really bad. In fact, I'm going to really pray for you about that. We can pray together about that thing. But don't get mad at me, but have you thought about how maybe God wants to use this and maybe how God can even use you in this situation? See, sometimes it's speaking a few challenging words like that. Other times it's giving words of, of hope and encouragement, or maybe even sharing a struggle from your own life and and what happened there. Other times, we we get to hear other believers talk about how God has led them to victory in some area or, or used them to make a difference for Jesus, and it reminds us that it's possible for God to do that through us because he did it through them. If we listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and we stay immersed in the Word of God and we keep our eyes open, we will find a myriad of ways in which we can spur one another on to love and good deeds and make each other more effective Christians in the process. And a church that is doing that, a church where that is going on is going to be purified and strengthened and be a powerful witness for the kingdom. We will eventually lead people to Christ. One way to say this is like this. The more that we successfully love one another, the more we will be able to love the world in a more excellent and faithful way. But there's another reason. Besides the fact that we need each other, there's another reason that Jesus calls us to prioritize our love for other believers. And that's because our love for one another is surprising and compelling. It's surprising and compelling. It gets people's attention And it tends to draw them closer. In Acts chapter 2, which is the story of the very first church there in Jerusalem, we read about how the believers and Jesus, they used to hang out with each other all the time in a place called Solomon's Portico, which was part of the temple grounds. And other times, they were eating together with each other a lot in each other's homes, and it says they were filled with joy. And it says the people around them who weren't yet Christians were watching them with admiration. Luke says they enjoyed the favor of all the people. And then he mentions that every single day, more and more people were getting saved and joining this happy church family. In chapter 4, Luke tells us that the church had basically eradicated poverty in their midst. Not because all the Christians suddenly got financially blessed, but because those who had wealth were sharing that wealth with those who didn't have it. In chapter 5, Luke mentions again that the people held the believers in high esteem, even though most of them were afraid to join them. What we see here is the people are being drawn to this new community, partly because of the miracles they'd heard about. Luke says that was part of it. But also because of the conduct of the Christians themselves as they did life together there in Jerusalem. And even though most people were afraid to join the group, maybe because they feared persecution from the authorities, maybe because they feared entering into this kind of deep commitment to God and to one another, still, they were very attracted to what they saw. They were compelled to come closer. They were drawn in. So that's what's compelling. But what's, what's so different about the Christians' love for one another that it would be surprising? Why would this Christian love be surprising, as I hinted to you earlier? Well, let's go back to that upper room again where Jesus tells His disciples to love each other. Do you think that was an easy command for them? Were they just like, they just hit it off with each other perfectly as soon as they met each other? And they were all buds? Did it come naturally? Lately, Don and I have been watching some of season one of that new series called The Chosen. I know some of you have seen that too. Um, it takes, uh, that takes, that, that, that's a really good series. It takes some poetic license to fill in some of the background details on the lives of Jesus, but also mostly his followers, people like Peter and Nicodemus and Mary Magdalene. And these details are not from the Bible, but they are quite plausible from what we know of the characters that they talk about. And one of the things that comes out uh, very clearly in this series is how unlikely Jesus' early followers would have been to get along with one another, let alone love each other with their widely divergent backgrounds and personalities. We see how Thomas, for instance, is kind of OCD and kind of annoys people from time to time with that. How Peter's aggressiveness can be kind of off-putting and how unlikely it would have been for any of the disciples to even want to be in the same room with Matthew because he was a tax collector and they hated tax collectors. And we haven't even met Simon the Zealot yet. I have no idea what's going to happen with him. But even even in Luke's account of that meal in the upper room to get back to the actual Bible here it says that that night as the disciples filed into that upper room they were already arguing about who would be the greatest and by the way they all passed that towel too the towel and basin that were sitting just inside the door and I'll bet they all kept a pretty safe distance because they weren't going to wash anybody's feet tonight get away from me you gross disciple you know It's pretty clear this is not a group of guys that would have just naturally become bosom buddies if Jesus hadn't forced them to spend so much time together and get on the same mission. But listen, brothers and sisters, that's the church. Look around. It's us, okay? That's what the church is like, and that's why it's so amazing that we love each other like we do. You see, in in a lot of other areas of life, you get to pick the people that you hang around with, right? Not your family, though you're stuck with them, but other people. And what do we do? We naturally gravitate toward those people who have similar interests and backgrounds, who have personalities that are kind of compatible with ours, people who don't annoy us, right? But in the church, the Holy Spirit has kind of thrown together this random group of people, most of whom are not a lot like us, and some of whom we're not really sure what to make of. And he says, welcome to your new family. And when we rely on the Spirit's power and reach out to each other, despite all the differences and difficulties, and start acting like a family, it might really freak some people out. Because it's not supposed to happen that way. I want you to think of it for a second at, at the youth group level, because... Um, I've, I've seen it that way, and maybe it's easier even to understand there. The kids in our youth group, and some of them are homeschooled, some of them go to different schools, some are Christian schooled. Let's just for now talk about the ones that are in public school. There's kids in our youth group who happen to go to the same public school, and they travel, I'm sure, in very different circles during the week in their classes and teams and things like that. But here at First Alliance, in the youth group, they are introduced to an alternative community in which the only thing they really have in common is Jesus And yet here is a place where the kid from the football team, the kid from the band, the kid from Future Farmers of America, the kid from the yearbook staff, and the kid from the robotics club can all find themselves in the same family. Well, what if this bunch of kids started to act like a family? Like the family of Christ? What if they began to learn, not just to learn together, but to play together and to pray together and maybe even hang out a little bit once in a while when they're at school? This actually happened with some of our kids at North Davidson several years ago. I know this because one of these kids was my older son. But they started eating lunch together with members of the youth group, even though they weren't all part of the same crowd at school. I wonder if anybody noticed that. My guess is that they did. Of course, in the church as a whole, we are called to do much more than hang out together, right? There are somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 different commands in the New Testament that end with one another. So we're supposed to love one another, forgive one another, bear with one another. That means put up with each other. Prefer one another, honor one another, hurt with one another, rejoice with one another, submit to one another, encourage and exhort one another, warn one another, pray for one another, confess our sins to one another. It goes on. That's about half. And as we put these things into practice in down-to-earth ways, as we pray for each other, make meals for each other, sacrifice financially to meet one another's financial needs, visit each other in the hospital, teach each other's children, call one another in times of grief or loss, babysit each other's kids and pets and homes, fix each other's cars, troubleshoot each other's computers, help each other find jobs, and the list goes on especially when we do these things for people who are different than we are, who we would not normally do them for, but who are nevertheless members of our family in Christ. These things become the hallmark of kingdom life. And of course, at a whole other level, if we can manage to do these things across the lines of denomination and race and language and culture, can you imagine how powerful our witness would be to this world right now? One of the great growth spurts in the early church in Jerusalem happened when this young congregation successfully solved a really thorny problem that had to do with distributing food to the widows in the congregation. And that problem had gotten so intense that it it, it had generated a bunch of complaining and it almost split the church along, along cultural and linguistic lines. But right after that happened, right after the church came together to solve that problem, in the very same passage, Luke notes that even a large number of priests began to follow Jesus. Which is pretty remarkable when you think about where the priests had been in their opinion of Jesus just a few months earlier. What if we Christians of different races and cultures, and even different political persuasions, gained an appreciation for this truth? that the Christ that unites us is much more powerful than the issues that divide us. I was thinking as we were worshiping today, if we had a black church and an Hispanic church and and maybe a, 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 a Cambodian church all meeting at the same time in this room singing the same songs together, we probably wouldn't care a whole lot about each other's politics. Something would happen. would that help us to make a a dent in the suspicion that keeps us from being truly unified? If we were really able to get along across those lines, would that send a powerful message to a deeply divided nation? I know I'm speaking in generalities here. Maybe maybe there's something specific you can do this week to, to connect with a Christian who's not in your camp. Is that possible? Let's pray that God gives us those kinds of opportunities. And then finally, as we draw things to a close, I just want to take one more look at a verse we already kind of alluded to in Galatians. It says this, As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, but especially those in the household of faith. This is a very practical verse. It's a very practical reminder that we're called to show love to our Christian brothers and sisters in a special way, even a preferential way. And you know what? This leads to tension in our lives sometimes. Because all of us travel in some circles where not everybody's a Christian, right? Right? In fact, some of you are part of families where not everyone follows Christ. And the members of your family that don't know Jesus may have a real issue with the love and commitment that you show to your church friends. They don't understand it. It may even lead to some jealousy and resentment. Because even though your participation in the body of Christ, as we've talked about, is actually helping you to love these people better, they don't see it that way. And that may lead them to try to to pull you away from your church family. We all feel that tension. How do you resolve this? I'm not sure exactly, but I I do know one thing that's true that we can count on. And we need to keep in mind if if we feel funny or maybe a little bit guilty about showing preferential love for our Christian brothers and sisters. Let's keep this in mind that the family of God is an open family. What do I mean by that? The only barrier to being brought into this family and into this kind of love is the barrier that is being put up by the non-Christians' unbelief. But once that line is crossed, immediate and complete love and acceptance is the result. The household of God is an opening and inviting household, open to everyone, and that is precisely because, as Paul says, it's a household of faith. This faith that we have in common, that's the basis for our fellowship and the foundation for our love. Our faith. And what what faith is that? It's our faith in Christ. We believe in Jesus. We trust that he has saved us by virtue of his death on the cross. And he has brought us into this family apart from any works that we have done or any qualification that we needed to have to get in. It was just Jesus. It was just through faith. There were no hoops to jump through. There were no tests to pass. There were no pledge tasks. We didn't have to run a mile in under eight minutes or have an IQ of 130 or greater or a sterling personality or go 14 days without cussing or memorize 20 Bible verses or learn how to find the book of Nahum in under 10 seconds. None of that. Listen, when a person comes to Christ, he or she is automatically in. All the way in. And that person is immediately baptized by the Holy Spirit into the family of God. And he or she is immediately entitled to all the rights, all the benefits, and all the privileges of citizenship in God's kingdom and membership in God's household, in his family. Including the radical and surprising and life-giving love that happens within the family. That's you and me. The family of God. Let me ask you to stand as we're going to close and uh, before we close our eyes to pray and we're standing because we're all praying together as a church, um, but before we close our eyes to pray, take just a minute and look around at all the people around you. Just go ahead and look and you can smile or, make, or stick your tongue out or whatever you need to do, but I just want you to look at the folks that are in this room with you. If you're at home um, not sure what to do, look around at each other and come next week and we, we, I promise we won't do this to you again. Let's pray together as a family. Lord, as, as we stand together and as we approach you together as, uh, as, as a family of people that you've called together in Christ, we pray that you would make First Alliance Church a place that is characterized by consistent and costly love of one another. That our commitment to each other would be such that, first of all, that it... it, it, it it changes us. It makes us more holy. It makes us more Christ-like, and it equips us to go out into our world and be really effective witnesses for Jesus. I pray that it would encourage us, give us the courage to live the Christian life, to live a kingdom life uh, out in public. Um, Lord, I also pray that, that as people in this community see the love of us for one another, and yes, even the love of people at First Alliance for people in other churches across other denominations and other races and languages, that, that Lord, it would say something, that, that it would be surprising, that it would be compelling, and, and Lord, that, that our love would be very authentic for one another, and that it would bring people to a place where they're drawn not just to us, but through us to you, because they sense that there's a supernatural love that just doesn't happen everywhere in this world. And so, Father, uh, I know that takes a, a million different little applications over the course of the next week as we um, just bounce off of different people in this, in this congregation and in our world and other Christians. But I, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to keep in mind that verse from Hebrews that says that we're supposed to be considering ways that we can make a difference in each other's lives by encouraging one another, building each other up, challenging one another, and doing all the other one, another, one another's in such a way that 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 first alliance church becomes a real force for the gospel in our community and we pray for the church in davidson county north carolina in all of its denominations in all of its languages and all of its colors and all of its theological persuasions and we pray lord that you would make us one that we would be a witness to this community precisely because you've made us one And that the world would know, Jesus, that you were sent by the Father because of the way we act and the way that we love each other in all these ways. We know, Lord, that it's not easy. We know we have to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But we pray that by your Holy Spirit we might be able to do that. And we pray in Jesus' name as we're dismissed. Amen.